Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, could I please speak with Baz Dreisinger? This is she. Baz, it's such a pleasure to have you on the phone. I'm so happy that you can be a part of the quarantine tapes. Thank you so much for taking this call. How are you today? My pleasure. Um, is that an existential question? How are you today? It can be. Well, I, it's an interesting answer you give me. It's as if the, this kind of question that we ask each other all the time has taken on perhaps a different meaning at this moment. Absolutely. I now have taken to asking people not how are they doing, but how are you right now in this moment? Because this is also moment to moment and second to second. So, so I, I'm not asking people about the larger state of how they are, but rather in this second, in this passing moment, where are you emotionally? Well, um, you just gave me my question. Answer, you, <laughs> answer your own question. It's an old, uh, it's an old technique, but you, you, you phrased it perfectly. So how is Baz Dreisinger in this very moment as I speak with her for the quarantine tapes? I am steady and inspired and um, strangely optimistic. Mm. So uh, l l let's take each element there. Um Strangely inspired, why? Strangely optimistic. Uh, strangely optimistic, um, inspired, why inspired, inspired by what, and optimistic, why? Well, um, I mean, I am inspired because I, I have to be. This is a moment to act. Um, this is a moment to do especially given the work that I do in the space of global justice. And um, it's, it's kind of, it's not a moment to sit back, but rather to do and to use this opening as, as an opportunity and turn the crisis into an opportunity to ensure that it doesn't go to waste. And I think that's true in all systems and structures right now, which are being destroyed with the potential to be built again, but it's particularly true in the space of criminal justice. And so I feel inspired by that. I also, um, some of the projects that I've been working on in the context of quarantine are artistic ones. And uh, I wear a lot of hats and it's been, it's been exciting to be able to, and it's also been life affirming to return to the artistic pursuit in this moment. And I feel really inspired by them. A, a, a series of short film projects and other art activist art projects that I'm working on. And I think the, uh, the strangely optimistic is one that I haven't quite figured out. Um, I think that my optimist, I, I'm generally an optimist and I, I, in my book, I say that optimism is a justice worker's imperative in order to do this work. You have to maintain optimism that things can be better and that there are great people capable of making them better but 
so I generally walk around as an optimist, but I think in this time, I almost think of it as like when you get sick, when you have an infection, your body produces extra cells to kill the infection, your body goes into overdrive. Well, I think emotionally my spirit has gone into overdrive with optimism in the face of the horror of all of this. And so I I wake up with extra doses of it that sometimes strike me as odd, but I'm not really going to question them too much because they're serving me well. You know, there's a, what, what you said about optimism reminds me of a line I so much like quoting of, of Chomsky, where he says, optimism is a strategy for making a better future, because unless you believe that the future can be better, you are unlikely to step up and take responsibility for making it so. Absolutely. I love that. And I, I, I exist in that space generally. Uh, and I'm existing in it even more so now. It has heightened. It has heightened your optimism uh, towards action. For the benefit of our listeners today, maybe you could describe a little bit uh, the work you have done, and then I have a, a series of, of queries for you. But I think it would be interesting uh, for our listeners to get to know Baz Dreisinger. Sure. I uh, well, as I mentioned earlier, I wear a lot of hats. I am. Uh, I am a professor based at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, although my, I am technically not a uh, criminologist or a criminal justice professor. My doctorate is in literature and African-American studies, um, but I tend to teach humanities through uh, criminal justice through the lens of the humanities. Uh, I am an activist and in, in, in the domain of criminal justice reform. I founded a program at John Jay called the Prison to College Pipeline program, uh, which is a university program inside prison that also works as a reentry and reintegration program. Uh, I'm a writer. I've written two books. The last one was Incarceration Nations, and it's about a journey to justice in prisons around the world. So it was a journey through nine countries' prison systems. And since then, I've led to the birth of the Incarceration Nations Network, which is my, uh, my current focus, and that is a global network and coalition of justice reimaginers all around the world. And we've got a number of projects under that heading, including a series of short film projects, an art installation, some, some research components, and we're all about essentially elevating innovative practice and radically, radical imagination is our tagline, and we're all about radically reimagining, rethinking uh, the way that we do justice, not just in the U.S., but globally speaking. But the, the way we, we rethink is so connected to something I'd like to talk to you about, which is the way we talk and the way we use language to describe the reality of this moment, the reality of what happens in prisons, how we describe things affects tremendously the outcome um, we we are seeking. And you, you've thought a lot about language, and I think you perhaps share um, a, a certain discomfort, to put it lightly, with the language that is being used at this moment to describe this moment, for instance, as a war, to use the metaphor of war, and I'm, or to use... Um, euphemistic terminology such as social distancing or flattening the curve. What do you hear when you hear these phrases? And how could we maybe reconfigure the way we talk about this moment? 
I hear numbness when I hear those phrases. I hear compliance and authoritarianism and totalitarianism and, and other kinds of dangerous things. I've been, I am attuned to language always. I'm an English professor and I, I think quite a lot about language. In this moment, I've been reading a lot of poetry because I'm interested, I'm, I'm so um, enamored with the, the force of economical language in short poems. Mm. And, uh, and I think, and this piece that I wrote about the language of coronavirus, I called it Corona vocab is says exactly that, which is that we are using language that is not allowing us the full force of the trauma that we are experiencing and, uh, trying to, in some ways, numb the population to what's really going on. And by talking about social distancing, instead of loneliness, isolate and isolation, and that was, and especially around this language of the war on the war on the virus. And for me, that harkened back to another war on vocabulary that I and other advocates are very critical of, and that's the war on drugs, right? Uh, which is which, which has never been won, <laughs> and never will be won because drugs cannot be met, or issues of of uh, substance abuse and and issues. Of related to drug use cannot be won by a, an aggressive war. They're a public health issue. They're not something you could take on with, with tanks and battalions. And so when I started hearing the language of war again and again, of, for certainly by our president or the man in our White House, but also by other leaders around the world, it just immediately harkened back to the danger uh, of trying to address something that is about public health with this language of battle and our tendency, especially in this country and the UK followed suit Boris Johnson did the same thing. Our tendency to just want to, to turn everything into a war and, and an aggressive attack. Um, uh, a so, war, a war and an invisible enemy. Yes. Yes. Which, you know, when, when I heard an invisible enemy, I was reminded uh, through uh, the reading of literature uh, many years back of, of books I read by, let's say, Céline, who spoke about Jews as being invisible microbes that could enter any system and you wouldn't know it, and they needed to be eradicated. I, very, very strong parallel to be making, but it brought out perhaps a, a real fear that the language we're using is a way of demonizing certain groups. It absolutely is. And I think I was also struck by how quickly and almost surreptitiously this, this new Corona vocab entered our lives and took over our lives. Uh, and so that everyone was just kind of falling lockstep. And in this moment where there's so much anxiety around authoritarian leaders, and uh, we have to watch the language that we're using. We have to uh, watch the language that we're adopting from them and just, again, falling right into compliance with. Compliance is another corona vocab. I also think that there was a lot of language, there is a lot of language, we talk about lockdowns, a, a lot of language, again, that's aggressive, but language of the criminal justice system. To call what we're experiencing a lockdown is an insult to the people who are truly experiencing lockdowns at this moment in decrepit cells all around the world for 23 hours a day. Talk to me about about them at this moment and what you know. I mean, given 
the extraordinary work you've done in so many different countries and it's not as though you've only studied them but you've gone to the places where people are locked down for real what's happening now that you you can relay well uh mostly disaster uh certainly in this country we are not releasing enough people we are holding we have the world's largest prison population of course and we know that prisons are at the center of this epidemic uh there contains spaces where people who are especially vulnerable uh to the virus cannot social distance and so on don't have access to PPE hand sanitizer and so what we're watching unfold pretty much on a global level is a, a health a public health crisis and in many respects prisons have always been a public health crisis we've been screaming about that for some time those of us who are activists and now we're being recognized okay there's there they are literally a public health crisis uh not only for those who are incarcerated inside them but also the staff and the prison officers who are coming out into the world and so it's impossible to stem the infection outside without dealing with it inside and it's actually the most powerful statement about how when we think we're incarcerating people and just getting rid of them in essence on some sort of a modern day version of a leper colony we're not actually doing that because we are still tied to them we are all in this together right so it's it's impossible to just think about having it contained in that one prison it's going to come back out here and then reenter and so there have been uh many there are, there are tens of thousands of cases already um in various states there are states like ohio where certain prisons have have up to 80% of the prison has been infected. I mean, these numbers are staggering. In other countries, the numbers are rising daily. It's a lot harder to have a tally in many countries as it's true on the outside of prisons in many countries because of testing availability. Um but I can say that the beautiful thing is that people have sprung into action and people, I mean, incarceration nations network partners all around the world. We had a call yesterday with about 20 of them everywhere from India to Australia to the UK and they're demanding that people be released in this moment uh they're demanding that technology that that systems move into the 21st century almost overnight by moving court proceedings and other kinds of hearings to Zoom and Skype and the like and so there's there's a tremendous push and more than it's estimated that more than 300,000 people uh have been or are scheduled to be released from prisons globally and that's why i say actually that it's this moment of opportunity it's a moment of trauma and terror and crisis um and loss but it's also this moment to say okay things that we never thought possible are suddenly becoming possible like turkey releasing uh mass amounts of people from prison so what do we do about it and how do we ensure that this isn't just some blip on the the screen of history but rather the start of something genuinely new how do we ensure that it isn't just a moment and that when this pandemic does also pass whatever that might mean and however that may happen how do we ensure that we don't go back perhaps uh, to what passes for normal Well, I wish I had the answer to that in the bigger in the larger existential sense because please do please do. Yeah. Try, I I wish try, I did. Try try try. <laughs> I mean, 
I am, unfortunately, that's a realm that I'm not optimistic about in the general sense. I think it's going to be a scenario like, you know, sometimes when you're really, really sick, you in that moment, you know, make all kinds kinds of vows with whether you believe in God or the universe, whatever it is, and you make all these agreements, just get me better and I will never, ever, you know, do this again. Or sure. and then you, And then you get better and it's impossible to tap into that feeling of how sick you were after you're better. So I sort of feel like in the general space, that is, you know, if we ever get better, uh, quote unquote, um, people will fall back into ways. There'll be incremental change made, but not radical. However, However. in the criminal justice space, I do think that uh, one way to go about this, we are going to spread messaging worldwide about what happened how it was better in this moment that you can release these people and the world, the sky will not fall down, uh, that these kinds of measures can be taken and you can move into the 21st century in certain progressive respects and look, nothing happened. There wasn't a massive crime outbreak. And so the more that we can push that message out to the general public and to policymakers and target both of those, the more that this can be part of a lasting response. And so that's what, those are the efforts that I'm engaged in. And I think art and um, media is, is one way to push that messaging. And we actually, this week debuted, um, we have an art installation and by we, I mean, I and and the artist Hank Willis Thomas who's an incredible artist and dear friend. We have this installation called The Writing on the Wall, made from writing by people in prison around the world that I've collected over the years. Again, the importance of the written word and, and language at this moment. Um, a lot of them are poems and, and other kinds of really beautiful pieces of writing. So we were scheduled, we debuted on the Highline Park in New York City in November, and we were supposed to be taking it on tour around the U.S. and then globally. It was a physical you know, sort of resembling cells, but you could spend hours in there just reading these words of people who are locked away. And we figured out a way to project it, to turn it into a massive projection on buildings and uh, with a focus on some of these poems that deal with loss and trauma and isolation and pain and also with some writing about, uh, written by people who are currently incarcerated about COVID inside the prisons at this moment. How extraordinary, how extraordinary. So you're taking what is written inside in a real lockdown outside for people to see. Exactly. And we launched it, we projected it uh, on the wall, on walls in New York City on Sunday night. Uh, We did it live on social media, on Instagram, and we projected it on a wall adjacent to the Brooklyn Bridge on the New York City Court in Lower Manhattan and on Manhattan Detention Complex, the jail in Lower Manhattan how, that's known how as... The- excellent, how excellent. It reminds me of a work I did many, many years ago with Jenny Holzer projecting on the walls of the New York Public Library um, declassified materials. So, so so tremendous to do it for, for many reasons. One of them, of course, on the library, words have a deep significance, but also because what happened, Baz, is I was standing there with Jenny in the evening, and people would stop 
I mean, one could walk around New York City at that time without, without fear. People would stop and would ask us, could you tell me what that building is? They would notice mm-hmm. they would notice the library for the first time because of the projection. So I commend you on this. It's it's really really tremendous. Um, I, I Thank want, you. I want to get to something which is you, you've been interested for so long now in alternative models for dealing with crime. For instance, in Rwanda, you said, I saw what can happen when healing is the focus of a justice system as opposed to punishment and revenge and anger. How could that kind of a model be applied, do you think, in the U.S.? And I'm thinking both about restitution and reparation. Well, the reality is it already is. Okay. It's just... Um, it's about thinking about how to how to expand and support the programs that exist. There are restorative justice programs operating throughout this country. Some of them uh, only for young people and and for um, what what people tend to think of as minor or smaller offenses. But some of them are operating on in in scenarios that involve grave acts of of harm and and violence. Uh, Common Justice is an organization here in, in New York that does that kind of work and is one of our INN partners. I recently visited a restorative justice program in Peru, a national restorative justice program in Peru. There's also a national restorative justice program in Costa Rica and in Washington, D.C. And in these programs, what happens is that when somebody commits the act, an act of harm, instead of just simply locking them up or giving them some sort of prison prison related um, sentence or probation or whatever it is, they're forced to reckon with what they've done, engage with the person that they may have harmed and determine a system of restitution. And these have, and I'm generalizing, but but, but in a general sense, restorative justice programs have been shown to be far more satisfying to the survivor of harm than the traditional criminal justice system and far more effective in ensuring that these acts of harm don't happen again. Right. Not, so, not eye for an eye. Exactly. And that is what, you know, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. An eye for an eye is the justice system we have. You harm someone, so I'm going to teach you to not cause harm by harming you. And we, we there, thereby reproduce a cycle of harm that only comes back to damage us all. You know, um, this is on a on an individual level, but obviously issues pertaining to restitution and reparation happen on a national and international level. And I'm thinking particularly of of the extraordinary moments I've had with Brian Stevenson, where he has spoken about the different ways in which the crimes of the past have been reckoned or not reckoned with in the United States, as opposed in his example in Germany, and I'm wondering if this is something that you've addressed also. Yeah, I think quite a lot uh, about that, given, A, the time that I spent in Rwanda and thinking about how they acknowledge the genocide uh, and continue to acknowledge the genocide and center it in the, in the heart of their national narrative. I think about time I spent in Chile and how the Pinochet dictatorship is memorialized and the disappearances of the of that regime and in also similarly in Argentina 
uh, but how much is not spoken about. And, and my other, one of my other homes is South Africa and the truth and reconciliation commission, of course, is one of the most famous examples of a public reckoning with, with great evil, uh, that is generally now seen as not very successful. So I think I tend to think of it in summary a bit. I put South Africa was sort of all emotion with no action. There were no rep- reparative acts taken and they were supposed to be, but no one got reparations. But there was a great outpouring of emotion. It was a cleansing of sorts. Uh, and then when I look at Chile, there was actually a very organized system of reparations. It was quite mathematical, but there was never really a public out crying of emotion. There, was, there wasn't that public cleansing that happened. And in, in fact, to this day, it's almost not talked about. Uh, and whereas Rwanda struck me as a fairly good compromise of those two things, um, and on the emotional register, a cleansing and an acknowledgement, and also to a great degree, a system, an avenue of reparations and repair. Um, and here in the U.S.? Uh, absolute lack of reckoning. And of course, Brian Stevenson's uh, work is, is a brilliant effort to address that and and the memorial is tremendous in that regard but there there needs to be i mean i've often thought we need a truth and reconciliation commission right in the grand canyon you know i'm when i when i think of of restitution i think of one moment in an interview i held at the new york public library with edmund de Waal, who wrote a extraordinary book called The Hair with Amber Eyes, where I told him about a trip I had taken with my father to Vienna. My parents left Vienna just in time and spent the war years in Haiti. There was a very small Jewish community in Haiti. And I told him of a trip I took to Vienna where my father showed, in, indicated with his index finger, certain buildings that he knew that no longer existed. And after a while, I said to my father that I felt rather low. Maybe, I'm sure I didn't use the word depressed in those years, but something of that sort. And he said, no, 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 you're wrong. That's not how I feel. I mean, not you're wrong, but that's not how I feel. I'm, you know, I'm here to tell you the story. And in a way, telling the story was a way of keeping the memory alive. And Edmund de Waal responded to, to that and saying, it's a matter of restitution. We give, we give people back our memory one story at a time. And how important it is that these stories you are gathering are a way of giving a voice to people who often don't have a voice. And I'm interested in another example. Um, you, you spoke about Rwanda, but you've also concentrated some of your efforts on, on Norway, where you say their prison staff is trained in philosophy, psychology, law, and social work, not criminal justice and not defense and military tactics. And I'm, I'd, I'd love you to comment on that and tell me if, if you think by training people in this way, the outcome is different. Absolutely, the outcome is different. I still remember my visit to the Norwegian Prison Staff Academy like it was yesterday, and at this point it was seven years ago. Right. Um, I was stunned by what I saw there. I, I have not seen it anywhere else in the world except other Scandinavian Nordic countries. But the idea that a prison officer is, number one, a respectable job, 
Uh, it's thought of like an educator, like a professor. It's a very coveted job. It's a well-paid job. And so people want to do it. It's not as in almost every other country I've been in, including here, something that, that no one really wants to go into, falls into. It's a critical job. If we're going to have prisons and we're going to engage in this act of corrections, then who you put in there as staff is vital. It's a bit like recognizing that a school is only as good as its teachers. Uh, and no amount of a beautiful classroom can substitute for a, a teacher who is, who is not effective. And so the idea that the, the corrections staff that I met in the staff academy and also in the prisons that I went to in Norway are truly educators, healers. They're trained in that way. They're thinking in that way. They're permitted a level of camaraderie and closeness with the incarcerated people they work with that isn't permitted again almost anywhere else. That, that is what corrections is all about. Baz, what a, what a pleasure it's been, um, to speak to you and I, I, I hope, I, I, I hope, but I, I fear not that you will lose your optimism. I, I wanted you to comment on a line which now, unfortunately, we don't have time for you to comment on, but was, which I'll leave you with, which has been with me for, for the better part of my life. Victor Hugo once said that he who opens a school door closes a prison and I think it's something to live by I'm really grateful to you for having taken this call stay well and keep on fighting thank you likewise and thank you for having me thank you so much until soon to support this show and Dublab's progressive programming go to dublab.com support 